Welcome to episode 11 of my podcast. Thanks again for downloading it and thanks to everybody that's been leaving comments on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It'd be great if you could subscribe as well if you've not already done so. On this episode, I'll tell you about an embarrassing moment I had a couple of years ago at the Tea in the Park Festival in Scotland. The time that I thought Red Hot Chili Peppers bass player Flea might be about to inflict some pain on me and why the Inspiral Carpets have spent the last 30 years or so being associated with all things cow-related. On each episode, I talk about a particular song that I've written over the years. This week, the first song I ever wrote and recorded. And I've actually got an audio clip as well uh, from when I was uh, about 16, 1976, I think I did it. The unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are a psychedelic bunch from Dublin. They're called Beach and they are fantastic. My podcast is brought to you by Distorted Productions. And thanks again to our friends down at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester for helping this come together. Okay, I'm going in. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. I was at Tea in the Park in uh, 2014, so it's the big festival up in Scotland, and standing backstage with Mrs. Boone, swanning about, look at me, anybody want a selfie? <laughs> kind of thing. Just hanging out with wife, having fun. And we were hammered, we'd had a drink. The Inspirals had done a, a, a set earlier on in the day on the Radio 1 stage for some bizarre and inexplicable reason we're on the Radio 1 stage. And all we had to do for the rest of the day was just taking this incredible selection of talent that was on the bill. It was an amazing lineup, And we'd even done a little timetable of what we intended to watch, a little schedule of who was playing on what stage at what times. So we, we were going to do it all, because a lot of these festivals, you don't actually get to see anything. You just end up chatting to old mates backstage and that. So we figured out, like, well, who was playing Arctic Monkeys, Catfish, Disclosure, I think Tiny Temper, Kaiji. So we had it all planned out. Of course, that all went out of the window, didn't it? We were already making proper balloons out of ourselves at tea time, me and wife. Loving it, absolutely beautiful weather and great occasion, lovely atmosphere. Me and Mrs Boone staggering about, bouncing off each other, you know, like a couple of drunks on the way home after every, every night out, but this was at tea time, you know, that sort of thing. And we were backstage behind the radio on stage and this kid comes over to us and he's, he's got his phone in his hand and he says, I'd like a photo with you, would you mind? And I said... Not, not at all. I think it was with the Disclosure crew. The Disclosure gang were there, and it was one of them lot. So I don't, I don't know if it was one of the band or what, but it was with the Disclosure lot. And he says, I'd like a photo with you. Would you mind? And at the same time, he's gesticulating, taking a picture with his thumb and his forefinger, like on his right hand, like, like pretending to click that. He's got his phone in his left hand. And I'm like, yep, definitely. Do it. Let's do it. Turns to wife. That's why I'm here. Boone Army, get your picture with the Boon. <laughs> so I'm standing there, waiting for this kid to get his shit together, and he's as slow as anything. Stood there looking at me, shuffling from one foot to the other, staring at me. And like that to wife, this happens to me all the time, this. Can we get a picture, Boone? Yeah, let's do it. And then they take all day to get the camera out and that, like fumbling about, looking for the phones. Oh, I can't take it, I want to be on it with him. Oh, where's the flash? Oh, I can see myself. What am, what am I doing wrong? You know, all that kind of business. It takes ages for to get a picture. I mean, I'm not complaining. It's, you know, I love it that people want the photographs taken with me and they want my autograph, whatever. Because these people, you know, their supporters meant I get to do what I do for a living, making records, travelling the world, doing radio shows, making podcasts. But come on, get your camera out and ready to shoot before you ask. Otherwise, I'm stood there like a tool for half an hour. So I'm there anyway, backstage, seeing the park, waiting for this kid to work out how to use his camera on his iPhone or whatever it was. And I turned to him, and he stood there looking clueless, and I said, have you figured it out yet? He says, what do you mean? And I turned to the wife and said, this is incredible, look at this one here. I said to him, your camera, have you figured it out how to use it? Picture, you know, you and the boon. 
and he stood there looking at me, and I'm thinking, what the fuck are you on? We had some ketamine or something. It's an iPhone, point it and press the button. I said to him, are you going to get this picture or what? And he looks at me and says, oh, I don't want a photo. I asked if, you, if you've got a light. I thought he'd said, I'd like a photo with you, would you mind? And what he'd actually said was, I don't suppose you've got a light. I'd not even seen, I'd not even seen the unlit cigarette he was holding and he was gesticulating, lighting a light and not taking a photograph. I don't even think he knew who I was now. When I think back, I don't think he knew who I was. I just said, sorry, mate, I don't smoke, real sorry. And my wife just did one of them. She just turned around and walked away, pretending she wasn't with me. I felt a right knob. And whoever it was that day, if you ever hear this, mate, I'm really sorry for how I acted that afternoon. I'm not always like that. Just when I've had a drink. <laughs> I feel straight into your arms Like a drunk who's been on it all morning And the sun's up and my head's fucked And immediately I grab you You go all red like the first time I love it when you do that Gotta love it when you do Okay, so I'm about to talk at length about cows, Berwith. I often get asked why so much of the imagery surrounding the Inspiral Carpets is to do with cows. And I thought I'd better clear this up before people start to think it's some sort of bovine fetish thing. It's not that. It all started way back before I joined the Inspirals, back in the early 80s. I was always a keen amateur photographer. And I worked with a bloke whose mate worked for a photographic supplies company. And, it, and this lad used to acquire a lot of cheap film for me. So I'd get really cheap Polaroid Instamatic film and Kodak colour transparency film, slide film as they call it, that you can project with. And because the films were so cheap, they're like a quid a time, I think. So it meant that I could afford to take shitloads of photographs without worrying about the cost. And the one pound that it cost for the slide film included the developing. You'd get an envelope with it in the box and you'd take your photographs put them in the envelope, then a week later these 36 transparencies had come back mounted and everything, bargain. And about that time, where I lived, there was a dairy farm right behind the house and uh, the field behind the house was usually full of cows, like these beautiful big dairy cows and that. And they'd always be sticking their heads over the fence, looking in and being nosy. Apart from when we were having barbecues, they never looked in, but when there's a barbecue, you won't see much of them. <laughs> they'd be on the other side of the field like that. Disgusting. Have you seen what they're doing over there? They're eating our mum. <laughs> I mean, anyway, so when, when it was barbecue day, you won't see them. But I'd spend a lot of time stood at the back fence with my camera, my, my beloved Shinon CM1, photographing cows, like cameras stuck in their faces, you know, like dead close. In fact, you could say that often the cow would have his chin on, my shin on. <laughs> anyway, so over the space of um, a couple of years, I, I amassed a stack of really good quality close-up photographs of bemused cows generally going about the business, you know, like cow with its tongue up its nose, cow talking to its fellow cow, cow sniffing its mate's ass. <laughs> so anyway, they'd always be there, like, watching me out of the corner of their eyes, like, yeah, he's here again. Milado with his shin on, thinking he's David Bailey or someone. <laughs> anyway, a few years later, so 86, 87, I joined the Inspirals, and for our early gigs, I'd bring along my collection of slide projectors that I had, and all these slides. There's a branch of Boots in Oldham, 
And it used to be one of those where a lot of the electrical gear that was like end of the line or whatever had been sent off to sell cheaply at Boots in Oldham to Oldhamers for some reason. But I'd be in there every Saturday, I mean, just getting all this gear, you know, get amazing deals on hi-fi equipment and photographic equipment. Hence my collection of really cool slide projectors. So we had the best light show of anyone's signed band in Manchester. When we did a gig, I'd go to the local rental shop and I'd hire a bubble machine and a smoke machine. Then we had all these oil lights and strobes. And, and I'd operate the lot from a big switch box I used to have at the side of my keyboards. My dad built me this, um, like a big switch box unit. Made out of an old headboard or something, I think. And the band affectionately called it the, the Birdhouse. <laughs> Clint's Birdhouse. And we lost it, we left it behind at some venue once, never to be seen again. I was a bit gutted, actually, but I've still got photographs of it, obvs, because I was an amateur photographer. So back to the pictures, anyway. So the slide projectors each held a magazine which would carry about 50 transparencies, like slides, and they'd be rattling away behind us at gigs, like the photographs randomly changing. Probably four or five projectors on some occasions. And many of the slides were collections that I'd found in junk shops, like, you know, Niagara Falls and... Times Square at night and Man on the Moon. And obviously, loads of photographs of these bemused cows. Slightly intimidated. In fact, maybe maybe even a bit scared at times with these cows. And what started happening was, as time went on, people at the gigs started mooing. When the cow pictures came up, they'd all start mooing. And at first we thought they were booing. And it's a phenomenon that continues to this day in Sparrow Carpets gigs. Half the audience mooing and the rest going... Why are you fucking booing, you cock end? But it's the mooing. And around 89, was it, we decided to set up our own record level, so that became Cow Records, a bit of a no-brainer, really. And the catalogue numbers for our first couple of singles, and any Inspiral's Anorakis out there will know this, won't they? But the catalogue numbers for our first couple of singles were Moo 1, Moo 2, etc. But then we had to change it because Manchester-based folk hero... Uh, Mike Harding, a.k.a. the Rochdale Cowboy, he approached us and said, you can't use me as your catalogue number prefix thing because that's what my records are. So Mike Harding had, um, he didn't say it in that voice, it was just a nice phone call. But he had a recording studio and a record label called Moonraker and that's why he, he used Moo as his catalogue number prefix. So we said, all right, we'll go for Dung, we'll use Dung instead. <laughs> Which is why to this day in Sparrow Carpets Records, each have a, a Dung number. You can thank Mike Harding for that. When we appeared on TV for the first time ever, Granada Television's uh, The Other Side of Midnight for Anthony H. Wilson, uh, check out episode eight, I think, of this podcast for that story. I decided to make a T-shirt with a cow on it. So I got a black T-shirt from Oldham Market and some stuff that was called puffy paint. It was this uh, special sort of coloured fabric paint that you could get. You sort of squeezed it out of the tube onto the garment and then when it dried, you'd turn it over, iron it, and it'd puff up. That's why it's called Puffy paint. I bet that took some thinking up, didn't it, in the uh, the brainstorming meeting at the, <laughs> the manufacturers. Right, lads, we've got this new product here. We need to come up with a name for it. Get your thinking caps on. It's it's paint, and it goes puffy when you iron it. Any ideas, right? It's paint, and it's puffy. Any ideas? Anyway, I made the shirt. I did the TV show, and then people started uh, asking if, if I could make a shirt for them, so I made a couple by hand. And then we decided, the band, that we'd knock some up, uh, get some properly made and uh, see how they sold. So I drew the cow logo, 
like the cartoon, like the cow logo thing, really quickly onto a piece of paper. Graham, our guitarist, came around, picked it up, took it away, because he was in the printing industry at the time. And off it went. And the rest is history. The Inspiral's cow T-shirt and the alternative coolest foot version uh, where the cow's got shades and a spliff. They became a crucial part of the Manchester scene and we went on to sell probably hundreds of thousands of the things, you know, to, to date. And if you're at Spike Island or any of the other key gigs back then, you, the Inspiral shirts were everywhere. They were omnipresent, these things. And that was how we funded the band until we signed our first proper record deal. And the coolest fuck shirt, it's probably the only T-shirt ever to one sale in Britain, which led to people getting arrested for wearing it. There's several cases of this happening because at the time, bands just quite simply didn't put the word fuck on T-shirts. Nowadays, it's, it's not a big deal, is it? <laughs> the other good cow story, in 1987, I actually built a massive cow's head for, for us to use on stage. And it was the size of a transit van. It had a smoke machine in its nose, green spotlights for eyes, and... I designed it so that somebody would stand inside it to operate it, so it'd swivel round, you'd have this big cow's head moving up and down, swivelling round. It'd be incredible, really. Smoke firing out of its nose, really. <laughs> Proper bad. And its eyes flashing green and ears wiggling around because I'd built these levers inside it. And the only time we ever took it to a gig, it had to go in a separate van. And um, my mate had a Mercedes van, which I borrowed and drove it down to this gig. So we were supporting the, the Bordeans at Manchester Academy. Oh, sorry, the University. It's now called the Academy 2. Back then it was the University. And it was up on the like, first or second floor of the building. We were supporting the Bordeans, and the manager at the time was Nathan McGough, who went on to manage Happy Mondays. He's currently the manager of White Lies. He's a top geezer. So I drove the cow's head down to the gig, and before I tried to get it into the building, I thought, I better go and ask Nathan if he minds us getting this on stage, because it was the Bordeans gig. We were only a support band. So I went up, found him, and I said, I've got this um, cow's head that we want to put on stage. He said, it's what? I said, a cow's head. Somebody's going to stand inside it and operate it. It's got smoke in its nose and green eyes, and that's massive. And I said, will you come and look at it? He said, yeah, come on, let's have a look. So we went down to the van, opened the back doors outside the university, and I said, it's just that, cow's head. He said, Clint, you're a total madman. There's no fucking way on earth that you're putting that on my stage tonight. <laughs> So it never got used, and it ended up in someone's backyard in Ashton, uh, Ashton Underline. And thankfully, again, I've got photographs of it. I've got some video filming, actually, going through its trials uh, in the Guidebridge Mill in Ashton, where I created it. When the Inspirals were about to release uh, our debut album, which was Life in 1990, we even paid the Milk Marketing Board. <laughs> it's got, it goes on this, doesn't it, this, this cow thing? We paid the Milk Marketing Board a chunk of money to um, advertise the album, and a big gig at Manchester's GMEX. We advertised it on like 10,000 milk bottles, which had be circulated around the doorsteps of the Northwest. And the artwork on the milk bottles was a parody of our Cool as Fuck uh, logo, so it's cool as milk. I know, genius. So what the milk marketing board didn't realise at the time was that these milk bottles had immediately become collector's items and disappear from circulation the morning after the contents had been necked by <laughs> all these northerners. The idea was obviously that the bottles get returned, the artwork gets erased, and some new advert goes on there for pile cream or something. And these days, these Inspiral's milk bottles that went out of circulation, but then they change hands for like 50 quid a time on the old eBay and that. In your face, milk marketing board. On the day we played GMAX, the, uh, the gig was on the 21st of July 1990. And as if by magic, a farmer turned up for the sound check with an actual cow. And to this day, I don't know how it came about, whether we'd suggested it, whether it was our manager's idea 
or was it just a fan, a, a farmer that was a fan with a cow that came to gig? I don't know. But anyway, next thing we know, we're all over Granada television and the Manchester Evening News, local boys done good in Spiral Cap. It's in Manchester today with the, the new friend, a 10-year-old Hereford called Gary or whatever he was called, his cow. And we're there, oh, it's Gary and hundreds of Inspirals fans outside GMX, everyone mooing. And then a month or so after that, we headlined the Reading Festival, so it was August 1990. And we hired a pantomime cow outfit from a local fancy dress shop. And there's been a lot of talk over the years about who was inside the pantomime cow. And as far as I remember, one of the occupants was indeed Noel Gallagher, our loyal roadie at the time. Yeah, Noel, getting back of this and walk around on stage a bit. Hmm, do I have to? <laughs> yeah. Okay, zip me in. <laughs> I actually wrote a track as well the Inspirals based on those cow photographs that I'd taken a few years earlier and their part in our story. It's called Theme from Cow and it was my way of explaining the cow theme at that point which had run through our work and it's written from the cow's point of view. <laughs> this is a very bizarre podcast, isn't it? The lyrics are, the field is green, so serene, you point your camera at me, cow theme. And that says it all, really. There's never been any big thinking behind the cow thing. It's just some Herbert from Oldham with a shin on and a bunch of apprehensive cattle looking over his fence. So one of the highlights of my radio career was a few years ago, I was asked to interview Flea out of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were about to release the Stadium Arcadium album, so it's May 2006. And the Chili Peppers management had booked out a whole floor of Claridge's Hotel in London for the band and the crew. And about a dozen or so radio presenters and journalists from all over the country got invited along, and I was working for XFM at the time, so went down there, all expenses paid. I thought, what a good do. Got a train down from Manchester. First class, right? Got off at Euston and got met by a car with a chauffeur and all that big black car. And then when I got to Claridge's, I was met by two lovely record pluggers, two blokes who worked for the record company, working on behalf of the Chili Peppers. And uh, they escorted me up to the floor where the band were um, set up. They'd set up the base for this particular round of interviews. And before we met the band, we were ushered into a large, like a penthouse suite sort of room. And one of the pluggers said to us, OK, guys, welcome to uh, Claridge's. Now, before we do the interviews, we're going to have to listen to the the new RHCP album in its entirety. And I'm thinking, fucking hell, there's 28 tracks on the bugger. It's going to take ages, this. I was hoping to be home for me, see me. So we sat there, listened to the entire album. It's a long album, double album, 28 tracks, about two hours long. And it's, you know, to be honest, there's a few filler tracks on there, isn't there? <laughs> there's a bit of that going on. Ooh. But no one said anything. No one said, uh, Ooh, this track's a bit shit, isn't it? And none of that. Everybody was appreciating it. And the buffet was like out of this world. The buffet was amazing. And when the album playback was finished, we were each told which member of the band we'd get to interview. So that's when I found out I was going to get 20 minutes with uh, with Flea. And I thought, brilliant, because he was the one that I really wanted to meet. So the record company people then chaperoned me along a corridor to the room where Flea was finishing his first interview of the afternoon. And I got told, right, wait here, Clint, uh, outside the door. And uh, they'll let you in when, when they're ready. They'll, they'll tell you and they'll let you in. So I'm stood there, a bit nervous. Squeaky bum time, as uh, Louis van Gaal once called it. I'm reading my notes now, you know, just getting, getting familiar with what we were going to say. And obviously I was going to be nervous. It's Flea, one of probably one of the most respected musicians of all time, really. 
So I'm there, like, reading my papers. And then suddenly all, all hell breaks loose in the room. And I can hear this shouting, swearing. I can hear a glass breaking, furniture going over. Fucking this bastard, that. And it's Flea shouting. Flea was shouting obscenities at somebody. And I'm thinking, oh, no, here we go. And the interviewer before me, the journalist or whatever, had upset Flea by quizzing him on something a bit controversial. Because we'd been told there was a couple of topics that we couldn't really talk about. And I can't remember what. There was something domestic, something maybe drug-related. I don't know. But apparently the, the journalist before me had brought them both up in, in succession. And I'm thinking, oh, nice one, mate. Why don't you just go and try and fuck my day up completely? Flea had totally lost the plot and kicked off. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get it right in the neck when I go in there. The door opens and this dishevelled radio presenter from Staffordshire or something comes out, scurries off down the corridor. Bloke sticks his head out around the door and says, right, Flea's ready for you now, Clint. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it sounds like he is. And I walked in and I thought, what can I do to get on the right side of him, disarm him? And I thought, I'll do a bit of name dropping. I know, I'll do a bit of name dropping. So I said to him, hi, Flea, my name's Clint. Three of my best mates send the love. And he's like, oh, yeah, who? <laughs> and I says, Andy Rourke. Bass player at Smith, Peter Rook, Joy Division New Order, and Manny, Stone Rose's bass player. Well, his face lit up. He gave me a big hug. He said, Welcome. I love those guys, man. He apologised for the commotion of what, what had gone before. He explained that the previous guy had been winding him up since the minute he walked into the room. And Flea goes and pours me a drink, and everything was good. The interview was beautiful. And even better, I'd got all three bass players, Andy, Manny, and Ucky, to send a question uh, for Flea. So he was like a kid at Christmas. So I was saved by the biggest name drop of all time, especially in the case of Ucky, Joy Division, because apparently Ucky was the single reason why Flea picked up the bass guitar in the first place. He's a massive fan, to the extent that when Flea isn't working with the Chili Peppers, he has a, a Joy Division tribute band that he often takes out on the road. So the beast was tamed. He was he was all over me. He was my mate. It was like it was like one of them little dogs. When you get a dog on your leg and it poodles, like humping you. He poodled me for 20 minutes. Metaphorically, that is not literally. That'd be an entirely different anecdote altogether, wouldn't it? Probably a better one, actually. <laughs> I don't ever wanna feel like I did that day. But take me to the place I love. Take me all the way. I don't ever wanna feel like I did that day. But take me to the place I love. Take me all the I've been doing a bit of sorting out at home recently and uh, the other day I found a cassette tape and it's basically the, the first songs that I ever recorded. So some of the first songs that I ever wrote, but the first songs that I ever recorded. The tape's about 40 years old now. It dates from like 1976. So punk rock had just inspired me and influenced me and changed my life forever. I was 16, I'm guessing. Now, I'd always loved music, but I'd never tried to learn an instrument. I remember the music teacher at school used to take the piss out of me because he'd say, you're shouting, boom, you're not singing, you're shouting, you know, when we're doing choir and all that. And it's fair to say that at that moment in time, I didn't really have a musical bone in my body. I mean, I love music, but I wasn't destined to be a musician as far as I knew. But we'd had this old acoustic guitar in the house since the early 70s, and nobody in the family had taken much time to learn it. So when this punk thing happened and I decided to start my career as a songwriter <laughs> that afternoon, late night, 76, First thing I did was take all the strings off this guitar apart from one because I thought six is way too many. I just left the bottom E string in place and strummed it like a wild man 
as I snarled my freshly written compositions into this cheap plastic microphone, which was plugged into my cassette deck. And using a second cassette player that we had, I recorded some crowd ambience from a live concert album that we had. I can't remember what the album was, but... And I played that in the background, so it sounded like I was actually doing a gig. And even though I'm pretending to be doing a gig and, and generally being an angry young punk rocker, you can hear in my voice, it's a bit subdued because I didn't want my mum and dad to hear through the bedroom door or whatever. My cassette recorder was my, my treasured possession at the time. Mum and dad had bought it in 1970. It was a Decca Legato. They bought it from a cash and carry in an old cotton mill in uh, Chatterton, just off Broadway. So the songs that I wrote, they're a mixture of angry songs, braggy songs, a song about a car. The first one on the tape, so the first song that I ever recorded, was a song about being in love with my television. It's called TV Turns Me On. And over the 40 years or so since I recorded this and proudly poked out the erased tabs on top of the cassette, I've occasionally listened to it. I've not listened to it for 30 odd years now, but at the beginning I listened to it a few times. And I think in the mid-80s, there was occasions where I thought, you know, when I was, getting, when I was becoming a serious musician, I'd see this cassette and think, I should probably erase that or at least jump on it till it shatters and put it in the bin. Because I was a bit embarrassed about it, you know, destroy it, pretend it never happened. And over the years, whenever I've seen it, the level of cringeworthiness that I've felt whenever I've held it or heard it, it's diminished with every every time I've stumbled across it because, if anything, I'm becoming a bit proud of it now. Because it's like that, that saying, one of my favourite sayings is, uh, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. I think some Chinese bloke made it up. But the day that I took those five strings off the family's battered acoustic guitar in 1976 was the day that I took my first step on a journey, which I'm still on as a songwriter. I wonder where he was going, that Chinese bloke. I wonder if he was a punk rocker. Anyway, so th th this tape's never been heard in public. Probably no more than myself and four other people have heard it. Mum and dad, maybe. Brother, sister, maybe a couple of mates back in the day. Mum and dad probably heard me through the bedroom door, <laughs> pissing themselves. And because this podcast is all about me opening up and letting you see some of what goes on in my mind and some of what's gone on in my mind over the years, I thought this episode would be a nice opportunity for me to share this with you for the first time. As you listen to it, and you chuckle to yourself, maybe thinking what a knob I must have looked, shouting into my little mic in my bedroom. Please bear in mind, please, that without this moment, there probably wouldn't have been all the songs that I wrote over the years, like the songs I've talked on the recent yeah. podcast and This Is How It Feels and stuff like that. They wouldn't be there if, I, if I'd not done that. There you go. So I'm not apologising, I'm just saying, just bear that in mind when you're taking the piss. Let's hear it now. 16-year-old Clinton David Boone recorded in his bedroom, 15, Paul Perot Close, A-Side Oldham, back in 1976, and it's an original composition. It's the first song that he ever wrote and recorded, TV Turns Me On. Thank you. 
in there. What do you think of that then? That was me 40 years ago being an angry punk rocker. <laughs> First song I ever recorded. It's all right, mate. You can tell I was into Buzzcocks, can't you? And the lyrics, in case you missed them, uh, verse one, let me tell you about a good friend of mine. I want to be with him all the time. Turn on the TV, turn on the telly for me because TV turns me on, because TV turns me on. Second verse, when I'm walking my baby to her home, when I'm talking to her on the telephone, that's when I'm missing TV. I want the BBC because TV turns me on. And verse three, I'm not sure what I'm going on about, but it sounds like I'm singing about, I don't ever want a job. I just want to watch TV all day long. And chance of that would have been a fine thing with life that I've had. I've had to work every bloody day since I was a punk knocker. Anyway, that was me uh, back in the olden days. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Right, listen up. I want some money off you. Not for me personally. I'll tell you what it's about. The day after this podcast gets released would have been the fourth birthday of our little girl, Luna Bliss Boone. Uh, she was very poor. She was born three months prematurely. She was only with us for 34 days. And she lived in the newborn intensive care unit at St Mary's in Manchester, an incredible place where the doctors and nurses do the most amazing work. You can't imagine what goes on in there until you're actually thrown into that world. And it's got to be one of the best facilities in the world for treating poorly babies. While Luna Bliss was in there, still poorly, our son Hector Angel Boone, who was only five at the time, he wanted to raise some money to buy some comfy chairs for the mums, so like maternity chairs, especially for mummies to feed babies and, and do skin-to-skin um, -skin care with the babies. So he decided to raise some money to buy a chair, maybe two, and we were thinking, like, you know, maybe get a grand, buy a couple of chairs, and it might have been three or four hundred quid in uh, John Lewis or whatever. You know the ones that rock backwards and forwards, them dead comfy ones. So he had his hair cut off, he used to have really long hair, and he had, this, uh, he had his hair cut off, he got loads of publicity, and the money started coming in. And eventually... Obviously, after Luna's death, a lot of awareness was raised for what was going on in this uh, money that Hector was raising. And so far, he's raised over £40,000, and about 24000 of that is just on the JustGiving.com website, which I'm going to point you to in a minute. We ended up buying 10 of these maternity chairs. They're actually made in America. They cost a couple of grand each. We bought 10, which is the, as many as the unit needs. The rest of the money has gone on to help decorate some really lovely little private rooms where mummy can spend private time with baby breastfeeding and chilling out. And uh, the rest of the money is going to a little, like a, an hangout area for siblings that are there. Because they have a hard time as well. When siblings are sat there for hours on end while the mums and dads are, you know, worrying about the little babies and that. There's a lot of little kids hanging about. and that. So we're building a nice little place for them to hang out. If you do fancy contributing, and I think you should, because these downloads are free, right? Send a few quid in and let's see if we can get it over 50 grand by the end of this year. Justgiving.com forward slash Hector dash Angel dash Boone. That's where you can give the uh, donations. Justgiving.com forward slash Hector dash Angel dash Boone. Go there when you can, if you can, and give a couple of quid in memory of our Luna Bliss. And as I said, all the money goes towards making the parents and the siblings of poorly babies have a more pleasant experience while they're in that amazing unit. Okay, it's time for you to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. Hope you've enjoyed listening again. I've enjoyed doing it. Thanks to the team at Distorted Productions, as always, and to those lovely people at Red True Barbecue for helping us to make this stuff come together. And it's always nice to finish each episode of my podcast with an unsigned band or artist. So the band that you're about to hear are a five-piece band from Dublin called Beach. 
they sent me a bit of information through. They're saying that uh, having returned from a year-long hiatus, Beach re-announced themselves with the release of the latest single, Arabia, in November 2015, accompanied by the B-side, Moonsmoke. Since the formation in 2013, Beach have developed a unique blend of psychedelia infused with elements of electronica and slacker rock, whilst expanding the live show by incorporating visuals to create a more immersive expression of their music. It's like what I was talking about before with cows and the pictures ever in it. After rounding up 2015 with a string of impressive gigs, 2016 promises to be an exciting year for Beach. They are Dave Barrett, Alex Conway, Adrian Garvey, Bernard Cavana and Simon Flintstones. Loads of influences, but the big ones are Tame Impala, Unknown Mortal Orchestra and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. So I'll leave you with this right now. Just sit back and enjoy the luscious, laid-back psychedelia of Beach with a track called Moonsmoke, and I'll see you next week. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes. Feel like I was coming up on something